Welcome to SCOTUScast, a project of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. Our contributors join us from around the country to bring you expert commentary on U.S. Supreme Court cases as they are argued and decisions are issued. The Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Welcome to SCOTUS Cast. I'm your host, Justin Drewer, on behalf of the Faculty Division of the Federalist Society. We're here today to discuss Securities and Exchange Commission v. Cochrane, which was argued before the court on November 7th. It's my honor to introduce our guest today, Margaret Little. Ms. Little is Senior Counsel at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, a new public interest law firm founded in 2017 by Professor Philip Hamburger to challenge the administrative state. She has over three decades of experience as a trial and appellate litigator in complex, high-stakes regulatory, mass tort, class action, products liability, securities, commercial, and civil rights litigation, representing individuals and high-profile litigants, including Fortune 50 companies, financial institutions, public companies, and universities in state and federal courts, including the United States Supreme Court. And with that, I'll hand things over to Ms. Little. I'm very happy to join you. Um, let me add that um, NCLA, the New Civil Liberties Alliance, where I am senior litigation counsel, has represented Michelle Cochran since 2018. Uh, we also represented Ray Lucia after his Supreme Court win on the uh, SEC appointments of uh, ALJs uh, in the uh, Ninth Circuit, and we represented a gentleman called Christopher Gibson in the 11th Circuit. So we have a lot of background and experience with these issues on removal. And um, I'm happy to report that I think we had a good day in court. Uh, the issue, uh, for those of you who haven't been following these cases, is quite simple. It's whether the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934 strips federal district courts of jurisdiction to adjudicate structural constitutional claims challenging the SEC administrative proceedings and the ALJ's removal protections. What was striking at the, at the argument was there was an implicit assumption uh, by all nine justices that the dual tenure protection is unconstitutional. The actual issue there did not get much discussion and seemed to be um, conceded, although uh, the justices were not considering the merits, they were considering whether there is jurisdiction to address the merits of the claim. Uh, Justice Gorsuch landed some powerful points. Um, he uh, said early on in the argument that the case for federal jurisdiction seemed clear and indisputable. And then he asked, what am I missing here? Uh, this was when he was um, in the Axon uh, argument, which is a related case. And he pointed out that the statutes require either a for final order or, um, in the case of the FTC, a rule, an order, a license, or sanction, or relief. And none of those were present in any of these cases. So we got off to a good start in, in the argument. Uh, and the discussion 
um, in SEC versus Cochrane, as well as um, FTC versus the Axon case, is uh, is falls into really three large categories. First, does the statutory system strip federal courts of jurisdiction? And neither statute, neither the FTC statute nor the SEC statute, contains any language whatsoever that strips jurisdiction. In addition, um, Michelle Cochran was in a particularly good uh, posture because the um, statute that she was being prosecuted under, which is the 1934 Act's provision for administrative proceedings, um, not only has no uh, provision that strips jurisdiction, but it has a provision that makes it quite clear that nothing in the 34 Act takes away any existing jurisdiction um, in in other uh, courts. So um, she had a very strong case, but the FTC also had a very strong case, and it appears that the, many of the justices agreed. Um, Free Enterprise Fund decided a case in 2010. And in that case, all nine justices agreed that um, federal court jurisdiction could be found to consider removal questions. Um, and that was unanimous. And then a less than unanimous holding of Free Enterprise Fund is that uh, you cannot have more than one layer of tenure protections um, under the same um, provision. So we had a strong case going in and certainly uh, the Axon company did as well. And this, the judges seem to agree with this. I'm quoting from uh, portions of the argument. Justice Roberts said, doesn't free enterprise stand as a pretty insurmountable barrier to your argument? He said, addressing Malcolm Stewart who argued for the government. Um, and uh, Justice Kagan expressed the same uh, uh, opinion that it appeared that free, this issue has already been decided by Free Enterprise Fund, or at least a strong case can be made for that. There's a second body of law that uh, gets considered in these cases, and that is um, a case called Thunder Basin and Elgin. For those of you who've taught toiled in these fields, you know that Thunder Basin is a pretty powerful um, obstacle to getting uh, matters out of administrative proceedings and into district court. Now, we had argued on behalf of Michelle Cochran that Thunder Basin was atextual and it should be uh, a matter of plain statutory construction under the 34 Act that you can go into district court just as the Supreme Court had held in 2010 in the Free Enterprise case. Um, Paul Clement, arguing for Axon, took a slightly different tact. He said, because Thunder Basin is there, and because we satisfy all three, uh, uh, all three conditions for um, finding district court jurisdiction under, the free, under Thunder Basin, that they would win on that point. Um, it, it was kind of a nice conjunction in that uh, we argued statutory construction as our strongest argument. We agreed with uh, Mr. Clement that Michelle Cochran could also satisfy the three aspects of Thunder Basin. Uh, and uh, so it was, it was a situation where you had parties in very similar positions uh, arguing that you could win either way. Um, Thunder Basin has three elements that you have to uh, satisfy if you want to get into district court. 
you have to show that um, in the administrative uh, scheme with the administrative law judges that the issue you want to have decided in this case for the removal protection constitutionality is wholly collateral to the specific issues in the case. Secondly, you have to show that it is not something the agency expertise or competence was in, uh, could add to. And the third is whether the statutory scheme uh, deprives someone of meaningful judicial review. Uh, as I say, Paul Clement arguing for Axon uh, made a very powerful case that all three elements were satisfied. One new development at the argument was, uh, I think it was Justice Alito who, who said, well, do you have to satisfy all three aspects of Thunder Basin or is two or one sufficient? Uh, something to which no one really had an answer. And that explains uh, a great deal of why Justice Kavanaugh said um, that he had found that uh, Thunder Basin, in fact, was giving the lower courts lots of trouble. It would be nice to see Thunder Basin question. Indeed, one of the amicus uh, who filed in support of uh, Michelle Cochran made the case for why the court should have just abandoned the uh, Thunder Basin analysis because it was not helpful. Um, we argued on behalf of Michelle Cochran, and this was Greg Garr who presented the argument, that um, the Thunder Basin case and Elgin really don't have anything to say about this kind of question because in both cases, the, the parties who were challenging the administrative proceeding were not challenging the ability of an administrative law judge to rule in their case because of improper removal protections. They, in the case of uh, Elgin, they just wanted to bring a constitutional claim also in federal court uh, and not exhaust the administrative process. And in Thunder Basin, it had to do with a mine posting uh, rule. And again, because that, that statute had uh, provided for administrative uh, proceedings for such posting uh, requirements um, that you would have to stay in the administrative proceeding before you could proceed to review in the circuit courts. Um, again, just to repeat the point, uh, the, the arguments we made is neither one of those cases tell you anything about what happens when you are challenging the removal protections of the adjudicator who should not be sitting in on your case at all. Um, in addition to Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh saying that he had concerns with Thunder Basin, that it had not been helpful, uh, we think that between uh, Michelle Cochran's arguments and those made on behalf of um, uh, Axon, that the uh, parties were able to establish that not only uh, did um, the issue to be presented not fall within the agency's expertise, it didn't even fall, fall into their competence. And furthermore, the issue is wholly collateral. Doesn't matter what is at issue in the case, it, it matters, um, are you making a challenge to the structure of the agency itself, which is what we were doing. And finally, the idea that meaningful judicial review could occur after you've already suffered the constitutional harm, the here and now constitutional harm of going through 
an administrative proceeding before a judge who does not have the power to rule in the case at all uh, is not meaningful judicial review. Um, so that moves us, uh, we have the statutory argument, which I tried to set forth, uh, the uh, case law argument. And then uh, what I actually think is the most powerful of all the arguments, which is just sheer logic. Here's what um, Justice Alito had to say on the logic. What sense does it make for a claim to, that goes to the very structure of the agency having to go through the administrative process? And he added, uh, in questioning uh, the government lawyer, isn't it in your interest to get this decided soon? This hang hangs over all, all of your proceedings. So he was making both an efficiency argument, but also um, that this is a issue ripe for decision by the Supreme Court. So we we're very glad to hear those observations. Justice Roberts put it in a somewhat different way. This is a series of cases that are in a, in a constellation around some fairly basic propositions. And to have people have to go over and over and over again does make the case about direct resolution of these claims pretty strong. Michelle Cochran, uh, in particular, had a very strong case because she had had an adjudication already in 2016 and uh, 2017. And then before her decision could become final, the Lucia case was decided, which meant her ALJ had not been properly appointed. So the SEC ordered her into a repeated proceeding. When they did so, uh, Michelle came to uh, NCLA and we filed a suit in district court saying, you know, she's already been through one of these proceedings. The SEC ALJs already have unconstitutional uh, removal protections, and um, uh, she should not have to go through these serial two repeated hearings. The court seems sympathetic uh, to that. Justice Thomas had a great uh, way of looking at this. He, he asked the government lawyer, what it, would it look like to have an ALJ decide these things? Because the, the uh, somewhat uh, irrational uh, view of the government about who should decide this and when is if you have to bring your case that the ALJ has unconstitutional removal protections, what's the ALJ supposed to say? I'm sitting unconstitutionally. Uh, they're unlikely to do that. They're, uh, they have a implicit bias uh, that they, they shouldn't uh, rule in that way. And so, um, you know, the, I think the justice got the, um, the uh, illogic of that. Uh, justice Thomas also asked how many years has this been going on? And that's an important question here because one of the things that we were able to establish and that in fact were, um, uh, we had amicus support on is how these cases, these administrative uh, proceedings can drag on. Michelle Cochran has been in administrative proceedings for six years. Ray Lucia was eight years, um, Christopher Gibson, seven years, George Jarkissi, seven years, uh, a guy out in the 10th Circuit, David Matt Bandemir, 10 years. And I think the justices seemed concerned that Americans were being tied up in these endless uh, reputation ruining, uh, resource draining uh, proceedings that go on far longer than an average federal court proceeding. Um, the uh, 
government did a, an odd thing to uh, the government lawyer. When he was asked about many of these concepts, he, he dragged out an APA claim uh, that said, well, sort of by implicit uh, uh, reasoning that you should have to go through the APA proceeding first. Now that case, that issue was never argued by the SEC below in the Cochrane case. It was in the Axon case, but he just did not make a compelling um, case for that. In fact, uh, if I can find the language here, um, <laughs> Justice Gorsuch said, I just wanna make sure I understand. Um, 28 U.S. Code 1331, which is the provision of the U.S. Code that grants jurisdiction to district courts to hear constitutional claims. Um, and, and we have jurisdiction under that. The FTC Act grants jurisdiction to courts of appeals for cease and desist orders. The SEC grants jurisdiction to courts of appeals for final orders. There is no withdrawing of jurisdiction anywhere in those statutes. And now you're asking us to turn to the APA to discern that, is that correct? So that was a, a fun exchange. Um, the, uh, there was some arguments uh, you know, on the other side. Uh, I think Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson uh, did the bulk of the questioning on that. And both were concerned with the idea that you, um, uh, the people who are in these administrative proceedings shouldn't be able to uh, escape out from under the proceedings by bringing just any old constitutional claim in the federal courts. Uh, the questioning didn't seem to be getting um, a lot of satisfactory answers on that. One of the things Paul Clement argued effectively was, well, um, you know, it's true that these removal protections uh, should be heard in federal district court. But say an agency decided that uh, you, in their administrative proceedings, you would not be able to call witnesses to testify on your own behalf. And his remark to the court is, wouldn't you want district courts to have jurisdiction of a claim like that? And there didn't seem to be much pushback on that as well. Um, so the uh, we feel, uh, as I say, that the uh, justices did a good job of stripping down the issues to their essences, and whether it's a matter of statutory uh, interpretation of the S FTC Act or the SEC Act, or whether it's a, how you apply the factors in, in Thunder Basin, or whether you hold uh, these cases to the rules set forth in the Free Enterprise Fund, which is... Uh, the rule of decision both on jurisdiction, which was unanimous, and also the merits, um, which uh, says you cannot have more than one layer of tenure protection. Um, another good argument made by Paul Clement was uh, on the Collins severance issue is that, um, you know, what you really can't have is courts or agencies saying, well, okay, there are more than one layer, so let's strip the, the tenure protections under uh, Title V, Section 7521, which is the Merit Systems Protection Board uh, uh, tenure uh, protection, because that's a, under an entirely different title. It's um, not something that's under Title 15 for the Securities Law or the FTC Act. 
and to have either an agency or a court uh, reach out and try to sever a provision of um, Title V is pretty clearly beyond the purview of any adjudicator. Um, one difference uh, that is important to these cases is that in the Lucia case, that was an appointments defect. And in fact, um, uh, that was something that the SEC uh, could cure. So after the Lucia decision was handed down, it appointed a, the commission made formal appointments of its ALJs, or so they tell us, and um, then assigned all of the cases for retrial. Here, where you have multiple layers of tenure protection, whether it be the, um, uh, and the Merit Systems Protection Board or the ALJs um, uh, protection under their, uh, their assignment to whatever agency they're in or the, the commissioners, uh, own tenure protections. Uh, you just have way too many layers of tenure protection here. So um, those are some of the highlights of the argument. Uh, I don't think the uh, Mr. Stewart had a great day in court. I think there were a lot of questions about uh, the cases that he uh, did not have good responses to. Um, whether it be on the statutory interpretation, whether it's be, it be how you apply Thunder Basin, or whether it be uh, the logical um, uh, argument that it's just simply irrational to force people to go through administrative proceedings and then go to a circuit court to challenge them only to find that the whole procedure they had gone through is unconstitutional. One of the helpful things, although it did not come up much at argument, is that we have a poster child uh, for what the world looks like when you have to do that. And that's George Jarkissi. And uh, Mr. Jarkissi first tried to get into district court in 2015, and he was denied that relief, even though he had some constitutional claims, due process claims. Uh, so he had to go through the entire administrative process, which took seven years. He took his case to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and in a decision that has caught the attention of most people, uh, the Fifth Circuit ruled, uh, his panel ruled that two to one, that he had been denied his uh, jury trial rights, uh, Seventh Amendment jury trial rights by the administrative proceeding. Uh, he had also uh, been adjudged by someone who had too many tenure protections and also that the decision whether to charge him in uh, uh, administrative proceedings or in federal courts uh, violated the non-delegation clause. So we have an ex a strong example of what it, the world looks like if someone is forced to go through this. And, and what comes out of that understanding is that he's gone through seven years of a, uh, a very uh, draining process that now has to be set aside altogether. Uh, I think uh, the court is, is it's at least several members of the court, uh, including Justice Alito, the Chief Justice, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, um, and Justice Thomas all seem to understand that we can't let these cases just fester and sit around without getting the issue of whether the ALJ um, proceedings are constitutional. And we should not put people through those proceedings that are very extended and, and very uh, 
biased. Um, the rules of civil procedure do not apply. The rules of uh, evidence do not apply. Very often, the uh, presumptions of innocence are reversed, and they, the ALJs put the burden on the um, respondent to show why the SEC does not have a claim against them. Uh, and then the review is um, in, in these statutes is you, you get your ALJ opinion, and then it gets reviewed by the commission, which is the very organization that voted to charge you in the first place. So uh, I think this is a uh, case that has the potential to make a serious inroads as to whether there should be administrative adjudication at all. Um, as, as the justices said, um, this is actually a pretty simple case. And I'll, I'll share one uh, moment of jocularity. Uh, <laughs> uh, Justice Gorsuch said, well, isn't this simplistic? And uh, Paul Clement said, no, uh, I, th I think uh, straightforward is a better word. <laughs> and, uh, and then they decided to agree that perhaps textual was the best uh, word to use for that. I'm not a, a professional court watcher. There are wonderful ones um, out there and they, they read every decision and they, they you know, can predict usually with great accuracy uh, how the uh, case goes. Let me just say this, the, the hostile questioning uh, came from uh, Justice Jackson and Justice Sotomayor who, who seem more inclined to be concerned about agencies uh, being able to retain what has been uh, their jurisdiction over these things. Uh, Justice Kagan is also a potential uh, uh, vote uh, uh, against uh, Cochran and Axon. But I will say from her, her questioning, and she's also uh, knowledgeable about administrative law, uh, she seemed to at least ask questions that were consistent with thinking the Free Enterprise Fund decided this case. And um, that uh, the other comment she made, which was a lot of fun um, on Thunder Basin, um, the government's brief, uh, and again, I briefed this in, in uh, California, Texas, uh, in the 11th Circuit on an initial petition to the Supreme Court, and then all the way through the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals through en banc. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the government was always arguing Thunder Basin is going to win this case, right? Well, in their brief in this case, it does not even show up till page 51. So Justice Kagan says an argument, I was surprised to see <laughs> that a Thunder Basin doesn't even show up in your in your brief until page fifty one, and then she says to uh, the uh, to Mr. Stewart, "Are you afraid of losing on Thunder Basin?" So that was a surprising question. It uh, certainly elicited <laughs> uh, some you know quiet amusement in the court, uh, and uh, I would say that based upon her questioning. I don't see Justice Kagan um, as a dissent, as a sure dissent. Let me just put it that way. So um, let me say we're hoping for 6-3, um, but 7-2 is not out of uh, reach if, if the questioning and oral argument is any indication. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCOTUScast. 
SCOTUScast is a project of the Federalist Society, a not-for-profit educational organization of conservative and libertarian law students, law professors, and lawyers, founded upon the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution, and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast series, including SCOTUScast and Practice Group Podcasts, on iTunes or Google Play. For an archive of past podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at fedsoc.org multimedia. That's F-E-D-S-O-C dot multimedia. This has been a FedSoc audio production.